Psalm 73 is where we are tonight, Psalm 73. I read this psalm last week during Jubilee and began to dive and dig into it. Of course, we've been in a series on Sunday nights called Awesome God and just going through selective psalms. This is going to be a two-part sermon anyway, so I guess I can cut it off wherever, but uh, it's going to be tonight and next Sunday night. But this psalm has so ministered to my heart in recent days and weeks that I hope that it will do the same for you. The 150 chapters in the book of Psalms are actually five separate volumes that were written. Chapters 1 through 41 are the first volume, chapters 42 through 72, the second volume, and then chapter 73 through 89, the third volume. So this is the beginning of the third volume that is written in the Psalms. And it is written, of course, in your Bible, you'll see it probably says a a Psalm of Asaph. This is the first of 11 consecutive Psalms that are written by Asaph, who was a Levite worship leader who led one of the temple choirs. You can read about that in 1 Chronicles chapter 15 and also uh, chapter 25. He was also one of the three chief musicians that were appointed by David to lead the choirs in the sanctuary. And it was Asaph that was directing the the 300 or nearly 300 voice choir when the ark was brought into Jerusalem by David. That's who is writing the psalm. He's a spiritual leader then for the people of Israel. And the subject of the psalm is the perplexity of the present prosperity of the wicked and the present pains of the ungodly. Why Job wondered why the righteous suffer, Asaph wondered why the wicked prosper. And what I love about the Psalms is that that they help us to honestly explore the depths of our heart because the truth is this, what Asaph puts here in a song and in words, what he conveys are thoughts and things that we have all asked in and of ourselves. The doubts, the frustrations, But at the same time, we come back to the truthful reminders of the character and the promises of God that renew our hope. And so Asaph is very transparent about the doubts, about the frustrations that he had in the Christian life. And yet he comes back to the character of God, the promises of God. And so what we have in front of us in this psalm is the confession and the testimony of a worship leader who nearly ended his ministry because he was viewing life through the wrong lens. And I've entitled this this chapter, this thought, Viewing Life Through Eternal Lens. Asaph is reflecting on his doubts, but he begins the psalm with his conclusion so that you know right out of the gates how he feels in the end, he tells us in the beginning. So, As we read this psalm, and I want to read it in its entirety just so we get the whole thought before we go through it. But look in verse number one. Truly, God is good to Israel, even to such as are of a clean heart. This is his conclusion. Then he begins to go into his testimony. But as for me, my my feet were almost gone. My steps had well nigh slipped. For I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there's no bands in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, neither are they plagued like other men. 
Therefore pride compasses them about as a chain. Violence covereth them as a garment. Their eyes stand out with fatness. They have more than heart could wish. They are corrupt and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens and their tongues walketh through the earth. Therefore his people return hither and waters of a full cup are wrung out to them. And they say, how doth God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the ungodly who prosper in the world. They increase in riches. Verily, I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocency. For all the day long have I been plagued and chastened every morning. If I say, I will speak thus, behold, I should offend against the generations of thy children. When I thought to know this, it was too painful for me. Say this next verse with me. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then understood I therein. Verse 18, surely thou didst set them in slippery places. Thou casteth them down into destruction. How are they brought into destruction? As in a moment, they are utterly consumed with terrors. As a dream when one awakes, so, O Lord, when thou awake, thou shalt despise their image. Thus my heart was grieved, and I was pricked in my reins. So foolish was I, and ignorant I was as a beast before thee. Nevertheless, I am continually with thee. Thou hast holden me by my right hand. Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel, and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside thee. My flesh and my heart fails, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And the church said, Amen. Amen. For lo, they are far from thee. Uh, they that are far from thee shall perish. Thou hast destroyed all them that go a whoring from thee. But it is good for me to draw nigh to God. I've put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all thy works. As we look around us in our world and our society, we ask the same question many times as Asaph. How do we reconcile the struggles of the saints and the quote-unquote success of the sinner? What do we do with the perspective that sinners seem to get away with Everything and Christians often can't seem to catch a break. The psalm illustrates what happens when we look, when we allow our faith in God to be buried underneath self pity, because that's where Asaph's at. How many of you would say and confess your faults one to another tonight in the church? I've been there. I've been there. God, I don't understand this picture. I want you to see, first of all, Tonight, Asaph's rehearsed confusion. We see this in verses 1 through 15, and this is as far as we'll get tonight. But I want to go through these questions. In the first 15 verses, Asaph comes up with a a list of, of what is often considered forbidden questions. You shouldn't ask, ever ask these questions. We might think them in our head, but most of us would never verbalize them. More or less, Brother Brian write a song about them with all these questions. But in the providence of God's grace, this this list of often unasked questions, it is presented to us by one of the spiritual leaders who is willing to be transparent and willing to reveal his own spiritual battle with doubt. Like many of us, Asaph rehearses 
that during this time of confusion, his focus was not as it should be. Notice the prominent pronouns in the first 12 verses. Look at it in verse number 3. I was envious at the foolish. That's where his focus was. When I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And then notice, notice the, the, the pronouns. They and their and them. Verse 4. But their strength is firm. There are no bands in their death. Verse 5. They are not in trouble. They are not plagued like other men. Verse 6. Pride compasseth them. Violence covereth them. Verse 7, their eyes, they have more than heart. Verse 8, they are corrupt. They speak loftily. They set their mouth. Their tongue walketh through the earth. Verse 11, they say, verse 12, these are the ungodly. They increase in riches. Look, whenever you put on the wrong lens and you begin to look around at the world and the they's and the them's and all that they have and you get your eyes off of the Lord Jesus Christ, you will soon forget the character of God. You will soon forget the eternal perspective of life and you will be just as Asaph. Why are they prospering? Why are they, quote unquote, Succeeding. So look at it. Verse number one, he begins with a powerful and proper declaration. Truly, God is good to Israel, even to such as are of a clean heart. And the, the clean and the pure in heart were the people of God, cleansed by, not by their good deeds, but by their faith in God's atoning sacrificial system, living by faith, depending on the mercy and the grace of God. Truly, God is good. How many of you would say with Asaph in a conclusion, truly, God is good? Truly, God is good. I love what Spurgeon said here. Let the devil and his instruments say what they will. I will never believe them. I have said it before, and I see no reason to reverse my sentence. Truly, God is good. So he begins with this powerful and proper declaration. He begins with his conclusion. And then in verse number two, we see Asaph's personal and public admission. So he begins in verse number one with his conclusion. And then in verse number two, he continues with his confession. What is his confession? But as for me, as a spiritual leader, my feet were almost gone. And my steps had, had well nigh slipped. And again, I would say if we would all be honest with one another tonight, we would say, I can identify with Asaph. You know what he's saying? I almost threw in the towel. I almost quit. I almost gave up. I almost blew it. Because when we began to doubt, listen, when we began to doubt and get our eyes off of the character of God and get our eyes and our attention on the success of other people, our integrity begins to waver. Besides Psalm 73, you ought to write Psalm 37. Just flip it. It's the sister chapter to Psalm 73. And in Psalm 37 and verse number 23, it says this, The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholds him with his hand. Asaph had almost, almost slipped. But thanks be to God that there is a God that keeps us from, from slipping and causes us to refocus our attention. 
And then notice in verses 3 through 15 that we see Asaph's private and pondering confusion. He didn't vocalize these things until afterwards. And we see why in the, in the last part of this section. He didn't vocalize these things right away. They were private. He was pondering these questions that he has here that I believe, again, many of us have, and I'm going to put them kind of in today's language as we go through them. The first question, and we'll go through them quickly, the first question is this, why do unbelievers have a better life than me? Why do unbelievers seemingly have a better life than me? Look at it again in verse number three. I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Remember this, it's always foolish to envy a fool. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. It is maybe even more foolish than the fool is to envy the fool. Asaph is starting to slip away from his confidence in God because when he looked around him, the pagans had more of this world's goods than he had. He saw everybody else, we would say today, living their best life, Brother Isaac. Living their best life. With all that they could want. And yet as he looked around at the righteous, he saw that they seemed to struggle. He was focused on the possessions of other people. And how easy it is for us to do that today. Especially in our American culture. To look around at all of those who have so much. And to be envious of them. And to get our eyes off of what is really important. If you're like me and Asaph, perhaps there have been times when you've asked that same question to God or you've at least wondered it in your heart. And by the way, we're in good company. F.B. Meyer, the great British pastor, said in 1800, he wrote in his diary, Why is your hand of blessing always on the other person? And we forget in, in Luke chapter 16 that this is a problem with our perspective. Remember the story in Luke chapter 16, the rich man and Lazarus? And in the very end, it wasn't Lazarus that envied the rich man, it was the rich man that envied Lazarus. And listen, church, we have to keep our eyes on eternity. We cannot get our eyes on the possessions of other people Because what matters most is not our current condition, but our eternal position in Christ. Keep your eyes on eternity. Number two, why do unbelievers seem to have less struggles in death, he says. In the first part of chapter four, there are no bands in their death. There are no fetters. There are no chains that weigh them down. No struggles. In other words, Asaph is saying they just seem to kind of glide into eternity. Not only does he see their possessions But maybe you'd write this out beside that. They're false peace. They're false peace. In the treasury of David, Spurgeon wrote this, with the surgeon's drugs and their false peace, the wicked often glide into eternity without a struggle, having accepted a strong delusion. Meanwhile, the godly are often fettered with anxieties that have risen from their holy jealousy, their desire to be more and more like Christ. And I have seen this many times as a pastor, he wonders, why do unbelievers seem to have less struggles in death? The third thing he asks, why do unbelievers enjoy better health than me? 
The second part of verse number four, their strength is firm. This is talking about their health. They have good health. Like like we've all done, Asaph wonders why the godly must often suffer the worst kind of health, health conditions, the worst kind of cancer battles, the worst kind of diseases. And we have these all around us. I, I think of our, our pastor friend in Ohio, Pastor Tony Liuzzo, whose young son, Logan, is going through this uh, battle with cancer, this mass that's up against his heart. I thought about little Penelope, Brother Steve and Miss Karina, this little three-year-old girl who, who is struggling with cancer. I thought about today, Pastor Earl, here in our community, who is is a voice for God in our community. And you look around and you say, why God? Why is it the righteous that suffer? Why, why do they have all of these health problems? Number four, why do ungodly people seem to have a trouble-free life? He says in verse number five, they are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. By and large, Asaph said they seem to have to, to have lives that are carefree lives. We watch TV shows about them, the lifestyles of the rich and the famous. We watch their glamorous, glamor, glamorous reality shows, the nicest cars, the, the biggest houses, the nonstop pampering, the fashionable clothing, the private jets, and the most wicked lives. Why do the wicked seem to have such trouble-free lives? His fifth question, why aren't prideful pagans revealed for who they really are? Any of you had that question before? Why does God allow these pagans and their pride to be so vocal? Look at it, verse 6. Pride compasses them about as a, as a chain. I mean, they wear it around their neck as a, a prize. Violence covers them as a garment. Look, Asaph saw, first of all, their possessions. He sees, secondly, their, their seemingly peaceful deaths. And now he sees their pride. And he wonders, God, why do you allow this in their lives? He points out that in their arrogance, they somehow always seem to escape the proper judgment that God should give them for their crimes and their wrongdoings. They're so arrogant, they can strut sitting down. They don't even have to walk. They wear their pride like a medal around their necks. Why doesn't God stop their arrogant boasting against him? Why doesn't he strike them down? Why can't people see them for who they really are? Why are so many people deceived by their facades? Anybody identify with Asaph? Why, God? Number six, why do wicked people get away with everything? He says in verse seven and eight, their, their eyes stand out with fatness. They have more than their heart could wish. They are corrupt and they speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. Asaph saw, first of all, their possessions. He saw their false peace. He saw their pride and now he sees their pleasure. He says they have more than heart could wish. They have their closets full, they have their storage full, they have their garages full, and now they even have to go out into Jamestown and buy and rent some more storage space. 
Because what they have in their house isn't enough. If you haven't noticed, we got more storage buildings going up than houses in Jamestown. It shows us a problem, doesn't it? He says their pleasure. And then he says their perversity. They are corrupt and they speak wickedly and loftily. As Asaph examines life, and this is what you have to go back to, you need to put on the right glasses tonight. Because it's easy, I don't know if you've ever done this, ever picked up somebody else's glasses and put them on thinking that you're, they're yours, and when you put them on, you're like, wow, they're really blind. That's what people do with me when they put on my glasses. I'm absolutely blind without contacts or glasses. But, but he's looking through the wrong lens. And when you put on the wrong lens, here's what you see. The oppression for the godly and the pleasure and power for the wicked. What you see when you put on the wrong lens is that the people who deserve to be punished are prospering. And the people who deserve to prosper are being punished seemingly. The wicked get away with public and private evil while the righteous are persecuted for doing good. Truth is beaten in the alley and it's hidden in the underground church while injustice sits upon the public thrones. Why is this? Number seven, why are sinners allowed to blaspheme without being silenced? Verse nine, they set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue walketh through the earth. He saw their possessions and their false peace and their pride and their pleasure and their perversity, and now he sees their pomposity and their profanity. Why are the wicked allowed to arrogantly parade down Main Street, mocking and slandering the God of heaven without the judgment of God? You've thought it. Why does our mainstream media get away with blaspheming God and praising those who mock God? You ever thought about this? Why doesn't, if God can do whatever he wants, why don't he just put on the front page of the paper a front page ad of the truth, of who they really are? Instead, it seems like, doesn't it, that mainstream media has a monopoly on demonizing the good. Why doesn't he silence them? Asaph said, I looked at this and I almost slipped. I almost threw in the towel. I almost quit. It doesn't seem fair. And he even admits this. I was envious at the foolish. I was envious at the wicked. Hmm. He's vocalizing things that we think but we never say. Number eight. Why are wicked people applauded? Verse number ten. Therefore his people return hither and waters of a full cup are wrung out to them. What is he saying here? He's saying that their admirers keep coming back. Let me give you one name. The wicked admirers keep coming back and applauding them. O.J. Simpson. They're violent. They're ungodly. They're wicked, even murderous. And what do people do? Wait for them to come out of a courtroom so that they can get their autograph? Wait for them to get out of jail? They keep coming back to them. Whatever they speak about, 
they are an expert in that area even though they've never had any dealings with it just because of who they are. Their admirers keep coming back to them over and over again. They can't get enough of them. Asaph is bothered with the fact that the standing ovations and the awards always seem to go to the wicked while the righteous are told to sit down and shut up. What's the awards for the, the music show, the music? I don't even know what they're called. The Grammys, maybe? We, we stand up and we applaud the wickedness. And then we tell the righteous, don't say anything. Sit down. Be quiet. You're being a radical. You're trying to push yourself upon us. Asaph says, why? Why does this happen? Number nine, why doesn't God vindicate himself through some type of judgment? Verse 11 and 12. And they say, how doth God know and is there knowledge in the most high? Behold, these are the ungodly who prosper in the world. They increase in riches. Through his temporary lens, here is what Asaph sees. That the wicked are unholy, that they are, they are unaccountable, they are unrestrained, they are undisciplined, they are unsilenced, they are unaffected. They just have full reign, it seems like. Where the righteous are looked down upon. Again, Spurgeon says they deserve to be hung in chains, but instead chains are hung around their necks in honor. They're worthy to be chased from the world, but the world becomes their own. The rich grow richer, the proud grow prouder. And now Asaph gets to the heart of his frustration. So his, his pronouns change from they, they, them, their. And now he begins to look inside. And you'll see the pronouns change in verses 13. Look at it. Verily, I have cleansed my heart and washed my hands. Verse 14, all day long have I been plagued. Verse 15, if I say, I will speak thus, behold, I should offend. Verse 16, when I thought to know it is too painful for me until I went into the sanctuary. It was all about himself. He became self-focused. Self-focused nine times in these verses he references I, me, or mine. And he has, like many Christians today, become intoxicated with self-pity. If you find yourself in this place, you're in a dangerous spot. You know when this normally happens? When we're neglecting our time with God, when we're neglecting prayer, when we're neglecting worship, we find ourselves in deep, dark places. Covered with self-pity. They're prospering. They have this. God is letting them get away with everything. And in the middle of it all, look what's happening to me. This, the, 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 the ninth question, or the tenth question, why doesn't holiness pay off? Verse 13. Verily, I've cleansed my heart. Look at this. In what? Vain. I've cleansed my heart in vain, and I've washed my hands in innocency. He's saying, basically, there's no payday for the purity. 
It's all been in vain. Sinning seems to be worth it. Just go out and sin. It seems to be worth it. God doesn't seem to care about that. And godliness doesn't pay. Mm, Looking through the wrong lens. Looking through the wrong set of glasses when you get to that place. Feeling sorry for himself. Having a pity party. Three people invited. I, me, and myself. And as I've told people before, there are no refreshments served at pity parties. No fun. You're the only one there. Number 11. I'm almost done. I know some of you want to say amen there. Number 11. Why am I convicted of sin when the wicked never slow down? Verse 14. (laughs) For all the day long have I been plagued. Remember, he just said, they get away with everything, right? And here I am, all the day long have I been plagued and chastened every morning. Asaph says that while the wicked bathe in immorality and sin with seemingly no punishment at all, the righteous and the pure are convicted every morning. In fact, before it's even lunchtime, we're convicted about that gossip that we did or that thought that we had. And here they are parading their sin in the streets and it seems like they have nothing. That's what Asaph is saying. See, when you look through the wrong lens, you view God's correction incorrectly, too. Because his chastening, dear friend, is an expression of his love for you. Psalm 119, verse 71, the psalmist said, It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I might learn thy statutes. Thank God. I mean, you say, thank God for his chastening in my life. Yeah, because it's an expression of his love. You remember what the writer of Hebrews said, Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 6, for whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and he scourges every son whom he receives. God punishes his children because he loves them. When my kids and the neighbors were doing things that they shouldn't do, I didn't bring them all in, Brother Steve. I brought mine in. I didn't spank the neighbor's kids. I spanked our kids. And guess what? When Jesus spanks you and he doesn't spank the other kids, it's because you're his. It's an expression of his love for us. Lastly, the one we've been looking for. How am I supposed to carry this frustration and doubt in silence? Verse 15. If I say I will speak thus, behold, I should offend against the generation of thy children. In other words, Brother Brian, I'm the worship leader. And if I express all of these things to people, then what are the young people, what's the next generation going to do? And by the way, there's some wisdom in that thought. Those who are older in the faith need to be careful with what they say and how they lead those that are younger in the faith. I have heard way too much bickering and complaining and bad-mouthing the Christian life out of an older generation that the younger generation want nothing to do with Christ or Christianity. Why? Because they've listened to us gripe and complain and bad-mouth everybody else in the church. There's some wisdom in what Asaph says here. Asaph knew that these doubts could hurt the faith of the younger Christians and the children. But I want you to look back in, as we close, look back at verse number 2. All right, all these questions, if we stopped there, it would be depressing. So let me go back to verse 2. 
And I want you to mark this, this word. But as for me, my feet were, what's the next word? Almost gone. My steps had, what's the next two words? Well nigh or nearly slipped. And I'm thankful that the testimony of Asaph is almost instead of I did. I'm glad that in the midst of his rehearsed confusion, he was able to have what we'll talk about next, a renewed clarity. Rather than slip away, as he said he almost did, I almost slipped away. But rather than slipped away, what did he do? He slipped into the sanctuary of God. He took off the wrong glasses and he put on the right glasses. And when he slipped into the sanctuary of God, he says, I was able to see clearly. What was he able to see clearly? Their end. Eternity. Their end. And listen, I believe that as the coming of the Lord draws nigh, that these questions will arise. We look around us in the world, there's going to be more times that we have these questions. Why, why is God allowing this? Why are they prospering? And I believe with all my heart that that is why Hebrews 10 verse 25 says, Not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is, uh, uh, but, but gathering and exhorting one another. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. We don't need less assemblies. We need more assemblies. More times with the people of God. Look at verse 16 and 17 again. When I thought to know this, it was too painful for me until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then understood I their end. His perspective changed when he went into the sanctuary. You know what I have to think? That, that Asaph had spent times leading up to this not reading his Bible, not praying, not gathering with the people of God, watching too much news. Watching more Fox News than reading the Bible. Watching too much Facebook and Instagram and TikTok and all the things that the world is flooding into you. Instead of filling your heart and mind with the truths of God's word. That the character of God is that he is a good God. He is a sovereign God. All things are under his control. Getting our eyes off of the circumstances of life. And on to eternity. I love the old hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. That's what we need, isn't it? Put on the right glasses this evening. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Get them off of everything else. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glorious grace. When you put on the right glasses, you can say this. It does indeed pay to serve God. I've been deceived in thinking it doesn't pay to serve God. And by the way, when I put on these glasses, I can see that it is foolish to envy the fools. It is foolish to envy the wicked. And what the devil wants us to start doing is thinking negatively about the character of God. Thinking negatively about God. Thinking that God has lost control. So say it and believe it and write it upon the table of your heart. 
and never forget it as he starts the chapter. God is good. God is good to Israel and to those that cleanse their hearts. God is good no matter what. And in the end, in the end, I said, not now, in the end, the righteous do prosper. It is not our best life now, it is our best life later. In the end, the righteous do prosper for eternity. And we need to see the end of the wicked, not not what they're experiencing right now. The end, we don't joy in it as we talked about this morning. It grieves our heart. But the truth is, is, is that for eternity, they will endure punishment while the righteous will eternally experience the prosperity of heaven and the presence, the very presence of God. Be careful to view life through the right lens.